You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 468 of this podcast. Today is Thursday, September 15th, 2022. And in this episode, we're going to talk freeform about interruptions, impatience, arguments, and polite discourse. And I'm going to make this one more of... uh, an extemporaneous episode. And I'm just going to speak from the heart because I think sometimes we can be too scripted. And I've been following outlines quite a lot here lately, and that's good. It's good to learn to be disciplined. It's also good to learn to be genuine and let love be genuine. And I don't think it's an either or. I think both and, and that's part of the way I can be disciplined is by disciplining myself with regards to letting love be genuine and not being so scripted that Nobody knows quite when this is a premeditated, pre-planned speech I'm delivering and when it's just me talking, for that matter. But I actually, over the past several days, because I haven't been recording podcast episodes as often here lately, it's been a busier season in life with community college starting up for our oldest two sons, plus homeschooling in general starting up for all of our kids this past month. Plus also some maintenance items around the house, things that we're trying to reorganize and reassess and be more intentional about. There just hasn't been quite as much time for podcasting. And that's all right, but there is a limit. (laughs) It was the 12th or three days ago, right? 14th was yesterday, 13th, and the 12th was the day before that when I recorded my most recent podcast episode, or maybe it was the day before and I only published it three days ago. Either way, it was a very long one and you can go back and check that one out if you would like to, but it was about Doug Wilson. And you know, I've been thinking a lot about Doug Wilson and the controversy and the scandal surrounding Doug Wilson and how he is a polarizing figure. But then this is a polarizing age And very often, unity is presented as being this ambiguous virtue. And almost on any terms whatsoever, we are told we should be unified, whether that's as a country from our president or whether that's as Christians within some kind of an ecumenical movement or even in the local church, we can be told we should be unified on any terms whatsoever because the highest good is that we would be of one mind. But if we're not careful, that can turn very quickly into groupthink. And groupthink is a very dangerous thing. When everybody is saying the same thing, everybody is thinking the same thing, you know, that not everybody involved is really all that necessary. And it should give us pause if only those who are going to say the same thing are invited to the discussion. When that is the case, you should look to the organizer of the discussion and ask some hard questions. I mean, you you won't get invited to the next discussion, but that might be just as well 
because getting invited to a discussion where you're not actually wanted for your genuine opinion, you're just wanted to affirm what it is that's been said, is kind of a ugly circumstance, which I personally, I for one, would rather not be invited to than have to be invited and then turn it down or show up and stew and have a bad conscience or say something that I might regret or others might regret. But I think infinitely better than any of those scenarios, not getting invited to a discussion because people know you're going to disagree or you're going to point out things that other people aren't willing to point out or don't want to talk about or don't want to address uh, or getting invited and showing up and crashing the party. I think a far better course is when on the front end, there is an expectation that there will be honest discourse. If there's not honest discourse and there's not an expectation or a requirement of honest discourse, can we really say that we're letting love be genuine? There is a concern in our day with the extent to which technology has created a dependence. And I don't just mean that for the low-class people, if you will. I think very often when stories are done about the impact of technology, they focus on low-class people, people who lack discipline, being conditioned by technology to think that they need to be staring at their phone 24-7. They need to be staring at their computer 24-7. They need to be staring at their TV 24-7. And if they don't have these electronic devices to passively engage with, then they're lost. But there's another side. There's a darker side to dependence on technology and the way that technology can shape and influence the way that we think about relationships and culture and society. And quite frankly, where that is not very often or often enough in my view talked about when there are stories done in the press, on news media, or commentaries given is with regards to those who actually commission technologies or implement technologies. And what I mean by that is those who are too accustomed to technology being a way to harness the thinking and feeling or even to manipulate the thinking and feeling of the people under their care or who they are trying to influence. When those folks become too dependent, they don't develop the skill sets necessary for conventional leadership because they don't need to, right? They don't need to. It's like muscles that you don't use, they atrophy. And then if and when you might need to use them, they're not there because you have not worked them for a long time. I think it's like that for a lot of our ruling class who implement and commission these technologies that have become so much a part of daily life, they dictate the control philosophy. They pick who's going to develop the technology. They decide who's going to maintain the technology. And are they too dependent on technologies to shape and influence and more to the point control how we think and feel about things? And then also, I guess, if you will, just speaking off the cuff, When they are faced with a situation where they might have to employ conventional means of persuading or leading or influencing or inspiring, if they are completely at a loss or even frustrated, is that maybe a sign that they've become too dependent on technology, too dependent on subtle 
means to influence those they want to lead or control. As someone who works in automation, and I'm not speaking about anybody in particular, any organization, institution, what have you in particular, but as somebody who has worked uh, on this podcast now since 2018, who's been blogging since, what, 2015 now, someone who's been following and reading about quite a lot, nudge theory and behavioral economics and what social media is doing in terms of censoring certain people who have conservative ideas in the interest of progress as the people who own the social media companies see progress. As someone who is fairly tech savvy and fairly well read on these things, and as someone who has thought about them quite deeply, I can attest to a certain laziness and a certain lack of integrity to relying overmuch on subtle means to influence others. And I dare say, I think this is part of why people don't know how to have disagreement and they don't know how to have debate and they don't know how to have discussions about things on which they disagree. And a consequence of that is that it becomes impossible to run any size organization or institution or unit of people together when we don't develop those things. Now, some people can develop both. I'm not saying you can't use technology and also develop these things, but I would say my concern is adjacent to Neil Postman's, where he writes in the 1980s, in the decade I was born, about how we are amusing ourselves to death in this age with new media, with the advent of the radio, yes, the radio, with the advent of television, and particularly with round-the-clock, 24-7 news media, I wonder what Postman would say if he could see the internet now and how easy it is to shape and cultivate opinions, to prune and snip and spray some herbicide on whatever views and tastemakers you don't want influencing everyone so that you get a predetermined outcome, a predetermined result. Well, that's a poison pill for all parties concerned because part of what safeguards any institution, organization, corporation, or society is the ability of the individuals within that society to ask important questions. For instance, about not just benefits, but costs as well. Not just opportunities, but threats as well. Not just the potential for gain, but also the potential for risk and loss. And is it worth it? And are we counting costs? Are we identifying hazards? Are we mitigating them? As someone who's worked in oil and gas for 10 years, I've had it drilled into me, no pun intended, that everyone who's going to be working on an oil and gas site needs to participate in a job safety analysis on the front end. And it is unacceptable, unacceptable in every organization I've ever worked in when you have someone who is trying to intimidate or bully or dissuade certain people who are on the crew from pointing out hazards or bringing up hazards 
or asking questions. Hey, is this correct? Is this the way that it should be? Could somebody get hurt by this? It is unacceptable if the person leading the discussion or overseeing a crew says, I don't want you asking that question. You haven't been here long enough to know how this works. You need to be quiet right now. In the oil and gas industry, because we're working with flammable liquids, we're working with explosive liquids, we're working with high pressures and high temperatures, we're working with rotating equipment, we're working sometimes at heights with heavy things that could be dropped from heights, or we are people who could fall from heights and die, and people do die, because all these things are in the mix. And the more people you get on a location, the more hazards there are, the more hazards there are, and the more people are distracted by rushing or being stressed out or being in a time crunch or potentially getting in trouble for asking a question, the more the hazards multiply. And sometimes those hazards end up being either the result of bad leadership or at a minimum, the cause of serious injuries or fatalities. And so then I look at the broader culture and I look at it over the past seven years and I read my Bible and I look at how freedom is portrayed as what we are getting as opposed to bondage, bondage to tradition and the old ways and what God's word says and what our ancestors thought and said and did. And so what happens? Those who have some memory of the past, either their own or what has been handed down to them because they did honor their father and mother and they listened when their fathers and mothers told them stories of when they were growing up or they listened to their grandfathers and their grandmothers. They honored their grandfathers and their grandmothers and they listened to the stories they told when they were growing up. Or for those who are very fortunate, they listened to their great-grandparents And they paid attention. Or if they were very industrious, very diligent, they read books of history and philosophy and commentary. And they surveyed relevant history to their circumstance, as relevant as they could possibly find. When those folks are told, you're not allowed to contribute to this discussion because we're doing a new thing and you're getting in the way of progress. You're getting in the way of unity. You're getting in the way of our brave new world, what we will find is increased hazards. And for as long as those hazards don't result in serious injuries, destruction of equipment, environmental incidents, or even fatalities, or, and all of the above, as is often the case in this industry, when you have one, you have more than one, the destruction of the reputation and the market value of even the very large and the very successful and the very wealthy and influential oil and gas companies. What we will find in society is that so long as no one has gotten killed yet, no one has gotten seriously injured yet, no piece of equipment very expensive has been destroyed yet, The reputation of the organization has not been destroyed yet. So long as that is the case, we will say, see, it's perfectly safe. Nothing to worry about. And that's what's known as normalization of deviance. And we see it everywhere. 
And the scary thing is the unreasonableness of people having rejected reason, having categorically rejected reason in the church all too often as being unspiritual and somehow ungodly and untoward. Never mind if you find it in the scriptures, you would have to employ reason with reasonable people to be hurt where you find it in the scriptures. And outside of the church, we find it everywhere as people are pursuing social justice and critical race theory and wokeness. And it's interesting because every time you find an example of the above outside the church or inside the church and you say, this is woke, this is critical race theory, this is critical theory, this is Marxism, this is a Hegelian dialectic, this is wokeness creeping into the church, what you will hear in return is, no, it's not. As if those things don't exist, as if they don't have definitions, because again, remember, all too often these days we are dealing with people who have renounced reason. They reject it categorically. Those outside the church have embraced the idea, the claim, the poison pill, the sedative, the tranquilizer, philosophically, psychologically, socially, that reason is a construct of white supremacy. Inside the church, all too often, the argument changes and it shifts to reason being unspiritual. Never mind that Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are wisdom literature urging us to get knowledge and with knowledge to get understanding. Never mind wisdom literature in the New Testament, like the book of James. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. As if wisdom is a good thing to get. And yet, do we even know what wisdom is? Do we even know what it means to be given over to a reprobate mind? In the book of Romans, we read that they became wise in their own eyes, which is not the same thing as what James is calling us to. And yet those who reject wisdom in the church very often will say, They are one and the same. If you're urging wisdom and you're claiming you have wisdom, you have knowledge, you have gotten knowledge, you have gotten understanding along with the knowledge, and here you are to bless the church with it, to bless the city and seek its welfare to which Yahweh your God has brought you in your exile. When you do that, very often what you will get is some variation on the claim or accusation that you're just being wise in your own eyes. You're being arrogant. You're being presumptuous. It's a lot of postmodernism. But in some circles, what you'll hear is that certain people have permission to be reasonable and they are very carefully vetted, and the rest are not permitted to be reasonable, not out loud. And this is a major pet peeve of mine. And I'm not saying that I'm not myself guilty of it, lest I be a hypocrite. Anyone who knows me well, I am guilty of it, but interruptions, interruptions are a form of gatekeeping. When someone starts to say something that we are very uncomfortable with, that we don't want to hear, and we don't want other people to hear, what is it that we do? We start talking over them to get them to stop talking because we're impatient, because we're self-important. They're talking and we don't respect them and we don't respect their opinion 
And we don't want other people to either. So we talk over them and we try to get them to stop talking. And the scary thing is sometimes this happens not because the person talking on the other end is wrong, but because the person talking on the other end who's being interrupted, talked over, talked down to, condescended, gaslit, is right. And that's a scarier thought. It's a dangerous thing if they're wrong and then what they're saying catches on. It's an even more dangerous thing if what they're saying is right and it's the opposite of what we've been saying. That's an even more dangerous thing temporally. Yet, what is it that Jesus says? Do not fear men who can only kill the body and then have nothing more they can do to you. Fear God who can both kill the body and cast the soul into hell. Those who are terrified of a reasonable conversation, of being cross-examined, are more afraid of men, lest they be found out. Because God already knows, and if we feared God, that would occur to us. But when we don't fear God, it doesn't. When we're too busy being afraid of men, or working from selfish ambition and vain conceit, it doesn't occur to us. We don't think about that. We don't think that we will have to give an account for every idle word. We don't think to ourselves that every single one of us will have to give an account to Almighty God, not just those who have been thoroughly vetted, not just those who have been given permission to speak, every one of us who speaks, who acts, and claims Christ. You know, it's interesting that my last episode, I was talking about Doug Wilson and the scandals related to Doug Wilson. And I like Doug Wilson, but I don't like the idea that we would show partiality to anyone, even people I like very much. I don't want to be partial. I can't have a good conscience if I'm being partial. What is it that Elihu says in the book of Job in the Old Testament? I don't know how to flatter. He says, lest his maker would do away with him. He can't flatter. And this is the reason why my second oldest son is named Elihu. It is not for no reason, because I resonated with Elihu in the Old Testament. But I look at Doug Wilson, and however much I might say I like him, I don't want to flatter Doug Wilson, and I don't want to flatter those who like Doug Wilson, like I like Doug Wilson, because I don't like partiality, and I don't like flattery, and I look... I loathe, I loathe uneven, unequal weights and measures because I'm trying to be an imitator of God. And God says he loathes and utterly detests uneven, unequal weights and measures. J.P. Chavez, my neighbor two houses down, listened to my very long two and a half hour episode about Doug Wilson, the previous episode, which is also probably part of why I didn't record anything for a few days here. But he did ask me a question that caught me off guard. And it wasn't a bad question. It was a good question, but it still caught me off guard. He asked me whether we should be more suspicious of the 94 ecclesiastical charges that were brought against Wilson in his own denomination, CREC, given that all 94 charges were dropped. Isn't that suspicious? JP said, I'm surprised you didn't spend more time drawing that out because that is pretty suspicious. And I had to tell him honestly. I said, you know what? You're right. It is. But here's the thing. 
If I'm even more honest with myself before I can be honest with you, the thought didn't occur to me, I think in part because I've been trying to play nice in other arenas. And to some extent, I think when you teach yourself to ignore things, you can get very good at it. And you can get very good at ignoring things that are troubling and things that are concerning. And again, going back to my experience in the oil and gas industry, 10 years in, I know that when men and women get very good at ignoring hazards on an oil and gas site, it's just a matter of time before somebody gets very seriously injured. You have an environmental incident, equipment is damaged or destroyed, production is lost, the reputation of the company is tarnished, and in the worst of cases, someone might even lose their life. So I know how serious it is in a practical sense, and yet it's not just what we do. What we do is affected by what we think and what we believe to be true. And to some extent, I know from oil and gas as well, that whether our having privately made note of something and mitigated that hazard on our own in this or that way, or whether we have shared that with others so that they also can be protected. And so they also can help protect us. That is a factor of culture. And if our cultures in this country, in our churches, in our families, in our homes, in our friendships, are not intentionally crafted to where we are actually really truly pointing out hazards to all four quadrants of our personhood, If we are not doing that, and more to the point, if we are being bullied and cajoled and threatened and intimidated into affirming things which are known hazards, sometimes even fatal, it's just a matter of time. It's not if, it's when. It will be fatal even to people, to reputations, to relationships, to organizations, to facilities, to institutions. So it bothers me. It bothers me to think that I didn't make more of 94 ecclesiastical charges being dropped against Doug Wilson because they were brought in the denomination he started. So chew on this. Doug Wilson, again, who I like, started the denomination, CREC. 94 charges, some of them, I think, redundant, but some of them very, very serious, And not a one of them held up. He started the denomination. And it's possible that all 94 were brought in bad faith. But it's also possible that they were dismissed in bad faith. And this is where due process comes in. And this is where recusal, when there's conflict of interest, comes in. This is why it's important. This is why it's important for things to be above board on the front end and for there to be sufficient accountability and when there isn't sufficient count, sufficient accountability, when there isn't sufficient accountability or there's even a hostility to the idea of greater accountability, we would say that's concerning because people are people. I'm people, you're people, we're all people. Another thing, JP, speaking of accountability, and I appreciate this, pointed out two episodes ago, I talked about Ezekiel and why men under 30 and women were not allowed to read the book of Ezekiel in certain very conservative Jewish tradition. And JP asked me a 
I think, a good question. I'm not quite as uneasy about his asking this question as I am about the one regarding Doug Wilson. I don't have nearly so much of a dog in the fight with regards to Ezekiel as I do with Doug Wilson having recommended his materials very often, but then also having criticized heavily people like my cousin Tim Mullet, who have platformed Jordan Hall and even joined Protestia, despite my warnings. With regards to Ezekiel, JP asked a question, which I think is a fair question. I think it's a good question. What God does is distinct from what we do. So is that relevant when it comes to what kind of language we use, how certain things are discussed in the book of Ezekiel, for instance, compared with how we should talk? And that's a good question. That's a question that had not really occurred to me in so many terms. I was thinking, boy, howdy, we ought not to be censoring God, but I think it's a slippery slope. And my reasoning is Ezekiel was writing these things down and certainly not sinning or behaving inappropriately to write these things down. Presumably, if we read the book of Ezekiel out loud, we are not sinning or behaving inappropriately. And so I'm not saying that means we should go around talking the way that God is talking in the book of Ezekiel. As a matter of course, there is a positional difference between us and God. And yet on the other hand, as I said earlier, if we are to be imitators of God in some sense, yes, I think that would include the way he talks in the book of Ezekiel. But how do we explain difficult passages depending on the maturity of others? Age is an important factor in assessing maturity, yes, but there are other important factors as well. And some have said that we live in an age and a time in American society where perpetual adolescence is popular. To some extent, I would say the rate of maturation is contingent on what we share when and how. In other words, we can slow the rate at which we mature by refusing to be challenged. It's just like the analogy of muscles that we don't use, atrophying, and then not being there when we really need them. And by contrast, we work muscles that we want to strengthen. And if we don't work them, and if they don't exist, well then, they won't be very strong, now will they? But then if we say, because they're not very strong, we're not going to use them, they will never get any stronger. And so also, for our children, or for our young adults. If we say, we're not going to work these muscles, we're going to set the expectations very low because we don't think they will understand what we will guarantee is that they will not understand until we revise our approach, revise our thinking. Someone is going to expose them to these things. Will it be us? Will it be someone else? And the manner, yes, matters very, very much, but to say not at all, I think, is a manner that we should not embrace. That's not a manner which we should prefer. Avoidance is not a healthy response to hazards. In fact, avoidance, in the sense that you just ignore problems in hopes that they will go away or solve themselves, is, in my experience, a guarantee that the problems will actually get worse and worse and worse. And they will not resolve themselves Essentially, what you are waiting for is for those problems to become catastrophes or 
for someone else to deal with it. But then we also live in an age where there is a hostility to other people intervening and dealing with problems that have been avoided. There's a hostility because, again, it might be scary if someone is speaking and they're wrong, but it might be even scarier if they're right. And what they're saying is the opposite of what everybody's been hearing for a long time in several key regards. So then we say, with regards to Ezekiel or Doug Wilson or big tech or automation in general or interruptions, we have a responsibility. If we're going to let love be genuine, to not be impatient, to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because that's, again, part of that wisdom literature in the New Testament. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, for the man who doubts should not believe he will receive anything. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Do you know what the principal test is? For who is going to get wisdom in God's economy, in God's kingdom, and who isn't? It's not who is intelligent, who is born with a silver spoon in their mouths, who is born with all of the advantages, who has succeeded in everything they've ever done, everything they've ever touched, who has been very wealthy and very popular and very well thought of. No, it's been said, nothing fails like success because sometimes people keep doing the same thing over and over and expecting the same results. Insanity might be doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results, but also foolishness can be doing the same thing that maybe succeeded given certain circumstances over and over again stubbornly, even when it stops working because the circumstances have changed. And that tactic that you're really good at, you weren't really paying attention to the relevance of, and the circumstances have changed. Right now, I can hear a thunderstorm outside, and I love thunderstorms. But my sons and my daughter, Evelyn, who just turned nine yesterday, were just at the ballpark with my dad, who asked if he could stop by and take them out. They hit the baseball around and throw the baseball around. And it wasn't raining when they left, but now they're home because it is raining, and you can hear thunder outside. And you might say, ah, there's rain and there's thunder But it's just so good that they would be out there getting exercise and throwing the ball around and hitting the ball with a baseball bat. And man, you know, it's such a pity and such a shame to go home when it's raining instead of sunshine, when there's thunder and lightning, more to the point. It's such a shame. Why don't you guys just stay out there? But that would be folly. That would be uncomfortable. That's a recipe for getting sick, being uncomfortable not having very much fun and potentially getting struck by lightning. So what did they do? They came home as they should have. And it's good. It's getting dark anyways. So that's well. And now you enjoy a thunderstorm. If you're in my situation, or if you're in this neck of the woods at this hour, when I'm recording this, it's a thunderstorm. And that's nice. This too, I think is worth considering that Sometimes when circumstances change, you change where you're at and what you do and how you respond. And maybe, just maybe, if you do that, it makes the difference between enjoying the changed circumstances or suffering in folly. To close off this episode or finish it up on a positive note, I'll say, 
my daughter Evelyn turned nine years old yesterday. And can I just say, it's very different having a daughter to having sons. Can I say that? I know these days some people don't want us to say those sorts of things. Gender is a social construct and all that nonsense, but that is just so. It's nonsense. I'm going to say it anyway. Having one daughter and seven sons, our daughter is very different. All of our sons are different, but not as different as our daughter is from our sons. Our daughter, Evelyn, is very sweet and special, and we have sons who are also sweet and special, but not in the way that Evelyn is. Sometimes I go too easy on her, and yes, my wife chides me for that. I hope, I hope she's wrong. I am trying to not be such a softy with regards to my daughter, Evelyn. I don't want to spoil her, but I'll confess, I don't entirely know what to do with a daughter with having so many sons. And the last thing I want is to be too harsh. I don't want to spoil her, but I also don't want to be too harsh. But if I try so hard to not be harsh with my daughter that I spoil her, well, that's no good. If I don't discipline her, I don't require her to obey her mother and I, to be decent to her brothers, if I am partial towards my daughter, that's not good. If I don't require her to clean her room, put away her laundry, take care of her chores, do her schoolwork, be appropriate and respectful and dignified, then I'm not loving her well. And yet, here's what I keep in mind. I have seven sons, I have a daughter, and if I don't show partiality, if I am a good example for them, if I work hard, whatsoever my hand finds to do, I do it with my might as unto the Lord. If I set a good example in speech and in deed, if I'm decent and honest and upright, and they see that and they can follow that example and heed my counsel, and love one another, and respect one another, and build one another up, spur one another on towards love and good deeds, well then, you know what? That's a very beautiful thing. Come what may, whether it's sunshine and they're playing baseball metaphorically, or it's a thunderstorm, and we all come home, and get inside, and have some supper, and wait for the storm, and the night to pass, and a new day. I might have rambled the past 43 minutes, but I do have a point Those who are listening closely will know the point that I'm making, and the point is just this. We should listen. We should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, as James says in the wisdom literature of the New Testament, for the anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. James also talks in the wisdom literature of the New Testament about not showing partiality, that we shouldn't show partiality. We shouldn't be quick to speak. We should weigh and measure what it is that we say, and we should ask God, knowing that he gives generously without finding fault and that the race does not go to the swift. The good Lord knows, and he judges with infinite wisdom and goodness and faithfulness, and that's what we trust ourselves to. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I gotta run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. 
wasteland Clouds into the sky Bring springs of life into the wells that have been run dry Rise up in this city Gather in this light Fall down on your people Your glory and your life Rain on with us for water Rain, we are desert land Rain on your sons and daughters Rain, bring your rain again You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.